Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I trust that wherever you're listening in from, you'll be encouraged by what you hear. Just want to remind you that you can join in the conversation raised by this podcast during the week by subscribing to The Big Three, a midweek podcast where Matt, Jess, and I sit down and unpack three big questions that were raised in the sermon. You can also download a discipleship menu for this sermon. The menus are a selection of activities that you can engage in on your own, with a friend, or even in a small group to put this message into practice in your life. You can find The Big Three wherever you listen to podcasts and our discipleship menus on our website, gamiabaptist.org.au, under the Next Steps and Growing tab. In this week's message, we turn to the third relational context that God uses as we follow Jesus, the personal context. In the personal context, between 5 and 12 people regularly gather to experience closeness, support, and challenge. If the divine context is God in you, and the transparent is you and a few, the personal is you and a crew. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand. Thanks, Rox, and uh, good evening. It's good to imagine you wherever you are. I've been in the chat up until this point in time, obviously. It's uh, great to have you with us, whether you're visiting with us, perhaps because uh, you've been invited by a friend or you stumbled upon us online, uh, or because you ha- uh, count this as your community of faith. Really want to encourage you uh, to be uh, kind of connecting as best you can uh, in this space. I know that for many of you, you spend a lot of your week uh, digitally uh, in groups, and uh, this can feel like just one more of those. But it's also the opportunity for us to gather uh, as the community of faith. As uh, Matt and Rock said at the outset of the service, we're continuing our series in the topography of discipleship, finding our way as the church today, in which we're exploring five relational contexts, five different relationships that God uses to develop us as followers of Jesus, as we are learning uh, to become more like Jesus and to be involved in all that he is doing. Uh, And our pattern this term has actually been to spend two weeks looking at each of the contexts. First of all, to focus on the why of the context, what it is that the relational context does for us as disciples, and then to explore some of the, shall we say, the application of it the following week. And so this is week one of the third context, which is the personal context. 
So we've looked at the divine context, which is God and you, in which we are reminded when we spend time alone with God of who we are and where we're going and our challenge to bring our character, our choices, and our priorities into alignment with him. Then we spent a couple of weeks looking at the transparent context. And in the transparent context, you and a few gather together with some intentionality to talk about the purpose that God has placed upon your heart, uh, the invitation at this point in time, your progress towards that in order that there might be significant uh, discipleship impact in your life. And today we are going to begin to look at the personal context where between five and 12 people gather together to experience relational closeness and support in order that they might also experience challenge as they follow after Jesus. A group of between five to 12 who meet together to experience closeness and support and challenge. That's the context that we're looking at tonight. And if you're kind of uh, following along, you'll know that we've talked a little bit about God and you in the divine context, you and a few when you talk about the transparent. And this is, well, you and the crew is what we're experimenting with. Uh, I started this morning with you and a few more, which just didn't sound any good. And Matt and Rox, if you can see them, they're both shaking their heads. And they came up with you and a crew. It works better. We'll see how we go. Um, we're trying to make it easy for us to remember nonetheless. And, and, and if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, this is all about life groups, you're partially correct. I mean, for us here at Gaimea, obviously, when we're talking about groups of between five and 12 people-ish who meet for personal support and closeness and challenge, that sounds a little bit like a life group. And life groups are one of the primary ways in which we are going to seek to help develop this particular context. But there are other places where this same thing can happen. Uh, I was reading just this week uh, in a book that described, it was talking about discipleship and spoke about um, a number of young men and young women who were attending uh, college at the same time and lived together kind of in Christian community. They kind of rented a place together and they didn't kind of have a life group together, but they basically tried to live as followers of Jesus together. That counts. Uh, Or in a family, we don't have to go back very far in time or go very far in terms of our world to know that in many places, there are lots of people in the house. It's not just one generation. It's not just mom, dad, and a couple kids and a dog. Uh, There are like five, six, seven, eight, ten people, which can also provide us with relational closeness and support and also challenge in, in in the context of discipleship. So while life groups are kind of the main way that we're going to be talking about it, I just want to encourage you to think a little bit more broadly. It's any group that helps us as followers of Jesus that's more than a few. Uh, Enough people that we are known by others, supported by others, and also then challenged as we continue to learn what it means to follow after Jesus. Uh, We're going to be looking at that passage that Roxanne read for us just a couple of minutes ago out of Mark chapter 8. But before we do, I just, I want to, I need to say something for my own benefit, probably more than for yours. Uh, One of my personal pet peeves is uh, when Christian authors feel it necessary to draw every idea, every principle, every concept back to a specific Bible verse or a Bible passage or a Bible story. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that the Bible is foundational for us 
and I think that it contains for us lots of principles. But when we reduce it to just proof texting, just kind of going, hey, a small group is up to 12. Oh, Jesus had 12. Hey, it's a life group. Uh, We end up reading the Bible in a remarkably shallow way. And so I, I really want us to be able to explore some of the principles that I think we do see in Jesus's relationship with the 12. But I don't want you to think for a moment that what we're exploring is the biblical roots for a life group, because I'm not convinced that that's the case. But there are some helpful parallels for us, and I do want to spend some time looking at them. And again, as I said, that's probably more for my benefit than it is for yours. And before this digresses into some sort of long-winded lecture on the interpretive principles of Scripture, I'll stop there. Uh, If you do have your Bibles and want to have a bit of a look at this passage, I think there are at least three things that we can learn about the personal context in relationship to discipleship. And the first of them, which I think is really critical, is that the uh, relational closeness uh, and the relational support is secondary to discipleship or it's done alongside of discipleship. I mean, let me ask you this. Do you think that the disciples were friends? Like, was there a closeness in the twelve? Now, we don't know a great deal about the 12 disciples. Uh, we, don't, we kind of have their names. Uh, we know some of their backgrounds, but very, very little. Uh, we know, for instance, that Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot probably had some things to work out as they both began to follow after Jesus. A tax collector was kind of a Roman stooge. Uh, the zealots were those who had very strong political views about what should be done to people like Matthew. And so throwing them together in the 12 would have brought about some interesting dynamics. But I have to say that I consider, I would think that the 12 disciples would have, at least by the end of it, counted themselves good friends. I can't imagine following after Jesus for three years, seeing what they saw and experiencing what they experienced wouldn't have led to some warmth in their relationship. Um, on top of the fact that they just spent that much time with each other, they were spending time together with Jesus. I'm pretty sure Jesus would have made sure that Matthew and Simon had the conversation and worked out how they could be brothers in Christ moving forward. I think if the book of Acts uh, had some sort of reunion five years after the resurrection and all the disciples had piled into a room someplace to kind of catch up, I think there would have been a lot of warmth and laughter in the room. But here's the point. The stories that were told in the Gospels tell us almost nothing about the relationships of the disciples because as far as the authors are concerned, that's not the most important thing. It's not the most important thing for these 12 men that we know uh, that they're, uh, of their relationships, of their tensions, of their struggles, of their deep love and commitment to each other. That's not the most important thing. What sets these people apart is that they were called by Jesus and they follow Jesus. That's what sets them apart. And I think that's really important when we think about the personal context as a way for us to grow and develop as followers of Jesus. See, we want to grow uh, when we meet other people. We want to grow close to them. We want to support one another. And that's really important. And thankfully, it's not an either or. It's not a matter of saying you either have friends or you go about the work of discipleship. It is a little bit of both. But for those of you who are in a life group, let me ask you this question. If someone came and visited your life group, it was kind of a fly on the wall, just kind of listening in, would they know that your group was about following Jesus? 
Or would they just walk away saying to themselves, what a lovely group of people. They seem to really like each other and really look after each other. Now, it's not a bad thing to like each other. It's not a bad thing to look after each other. But when we gather together in the personal context, we are gathering together in order to support and care for one another as followers of Jesus. And that's a really important starting point for this personal context. That it is, to some degree, much, much deeper and more profound than simply having friends who support us, who walk with us through the good times and through the bad. But I actually just want to pause for a moment and kind of make a bit of an aside. And I'm actually going to step aside. So I actually think there's something really important about the context that we are in right now. I think for most of you who have logged in, I think most of you are local. I don't know how many of you are outside of the current lockdown that we are currently in. I think for most of us, that's the reality that we're in. I know that some of you who may be outside of those normal areas are actually part of our community of faith anyways. And so the reality is this is how we meet. And in in these times, when we find ourselves facing uh, less certainty and more anxiety, Uh, When things, even if it's just that we're a little bit bored uh, with the same routine as days blur into one another, or if we have some real significant struggles, you know, living alone or financial concerns about what's going to happen if this lockdown continues, in that context, in, in in the place we find ourselves right now, I'd like to say and give you the permission to be really focused on personally caring for and supporting one another right now. Discipleship is always important. And whenever we can turn one another to trust in the Lord and to place our hope in Him and find strength in Him and and stay connected to Him, that's truly important. But right now, it might be as important just to check in with people. And not so much to find out how they're going with God, just to find out how they are going. To allow us to experience the closeness and the, the, the support that we need as we go through this period of time. So let's just kind of be kind to ourselves and kind to those who are in our immediate circles. Touching base, supporting and caring for one another, because I think that's perhaps the most important thing right now. Aside, done. How's that for the magic of television? So the second thing I think that we find here in uh, in, in this example of Jesus and his disciples that I think relates to the... Uh, the personal context, is what happens in the boat. This is the discussion that the disciples have, uh, as Roxanne read for us. It takes place, as you, if you kind of flick back to the start of chapter 8, just after Jesus has fed the 4,000. This is the second miraculous feeding that Jesus has performed in Mark's account. The first has been in Jewish territory, uh, and he's fed 5,000 men plus women and children. The second, the feeding of the 4,000, took place in Gentile or non-Jewish territory. And in both cases, Jesus over-caters. He has a handful of fish and bread, uh, and he manages to feed and, and actually have a whole bunch of food left over. At the end of the feeding of the 4,000, just prior to the section that Roxanne began to read, the Pharisees came to Jesus and, and inexplicably asked him for a sign to validate who he was after all that he had already done. And so as they get into the boat, the disciples having brought just one loaf of bread, Jesus warns them. He says, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. 
And the disciples immediately kind of fall to discussing this. And the term, the Greek term that is used here for discussion is kind of a, almost a, a, a debate of sorts, kind of the back and forth, but generally speaking, ending up with confusion. It's probably the Greek word for social media debates, if you want to think about it that way. But they end up having this long debate. I'd love to know how long it took them before they came up with the stunning conclusion that they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about and that he was having a subtle go at them for forgetting to bring more bread. And the key discipleship lesson that Jesus wanted to make was, whenever you're traveling with Jesus, take two loaves, not one. And you can almost hear the exasperation in Jesus' voice, can't you? You can almost see him rolling his eyes, right? As he turns to them and says, what, why are you talking about having no bread? Like, what, what's taking place here? And then Jesus kind of mentions two different components. He talks a little bit about previous teaching or alludes to it. He says, do you still not see or understand or your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And that goes back to um, one of the most significant parables in Mark's account, which is the parable of the soils. Uh, When the farmer goes out and chucks seed everywhere and some lands on the footpath and some lands in the rocky soil and some of the weeds and some of the good soil. And the disciples come to Jesus afterwards and they say, what was that all about? And Jesus unpacks for them what the parable was referring to, that the word of God, the the good news about Jesus is kind of cast all over the place, but it doesn't always find receptive and open hearts. And in the midst of that, Jesus actually quotes Isaiah chapter 6, which refers to the call and the commissioning of Isaiah to explain why he is always using indirect language, why he always uses parables, why he speaks in ways that are not immediately clear. And it seems that part of the reason that Jesus does that is to identify the state of the listener's hearts. It kind of works like this. When Jesus would talk in a parable, like he does here, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and then of Herod. Like it's, it's, it's obviously, well, unless you're a disciple in the boat, it's obviously not literal, right? Jesus is not here saying, listen, when you go buy yeast, for, you know, for the love of God, please don't go to the Pharisees. Like that's not what he's saying. There's something indirect here. And to, for those whose hearts are hard, they hear the story and they kind of go, that doesn't make any sense. That's just dumb. And they leave it at that or they come to the wrong conclusion. But those whose hearts are soft are the ones who kind of lean into it a little bit. For the disciples, it often meant asking Jesus what he meant, clarifying what he meant, asking for a greater, deeper teaching about what was going on. But you can tell the state of their heart by, um, by how they lean into the teaching. And here, the disciples just completely miss it. So Jesus reminds them of his teaching, and then he reminds them of what he has done. He goes on to say, don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered 12. And when I did the same with the seven, how many did you pick up? They said seven. And Jesus then asks them, do you still not understand? And I think Jesus is kind of... Kind of um, change tax a little bit here. He starts by reminding them of uh, the importance of listening to what he has to say, of really engaging with the parables that he tells, even very, very brief ones, and then reminds them of their experiences. It's as if Jesus is here saying, why are you talking about bread? Uh, With with a few fish and a few pieces of bread, I fed 5,000 and had extras left over. I'm pretty sure we're good 
on the bread front. Like that's not the issue. So he reminds them of his teaching and he reminds them of what he has done. And I actually think that that's a really critical piece for what should take place in terms of the challenge of the personal context. In the personal context, we experience closeness and support, not just so that we can get through the challenges of life, but in order that we can get through the challenges of following after Jesus. And one of the challenges and one of the the key actions of this personal group is to always be reminding each other and turning each other back to the teachings and the activity of Jesus. What has Jesus said? What has Jesus done? What is Jesus saying and what is he doing? To always be reminding us of what Jesus has said and is doing as the basis of our life together. And I think that's really quite critical for our life groups in any kind of space where this takes place. And again, allow me to take a brief aside. I'm quite liking this little new move. One of the things that I noticed when um, I first arrived in Australia, I still notice it to this day, is that generally speaking, um, many Australians have um, a hesitancy to be willing to say, I am the leader. It's true in uh, nearly every area of ministry that I've seen and uh, certainly is true in life groups. Uh, People are much more comfortable with terms like a facilitator or a host or whatever the case might be. And it seems that sometimes we assume that to be a leader in any area means that we have to have it all together. That we have to have a kind of an inside and backwards and upside down understanding of Scripture. That we need to be kind of paragons of virtue and masters of all the skills that are required. When in reality, I think what we most often need from those who are going to lead us are people who will be courageous enough and persistent enough to always turn us again to what Jesus has said and what he is doing. We sometimes set the bar for leadership so high that none of us could ever meet it. We kind of take this uh, this example as almost a bit of a parallel, right? That Jesus and the disciples were a life group, and so the leader was Jesus, so I am not the leader. And that's to miss, I think, a really important dynamic of the personal context, where what we are really doing in this space is to experience that closeness and support in order that we might always be returned, always returned to the example, the teaching, and the activity of Jesus. So perhaps you are already a leader. You just need to step into it. End of the aside. There is one more thing, I think, though, that we can take uh, from this passage that I think is remarkably helpful. Actually, not so much out of this passage, but out of the, the whole story of Jesus and his disciples. They are a group of people, and this is true of the personal context, gathered around Jesus, who are focused on hearing what Jesus has said and remembering what Jesus has done. But the reason why Jesus wants to remind them of his teaching, the reason why Jesus wants them to remember what he has done is not so that he can have the smartest, um, sharpest disciples. Jesus is not in some sort of rabbi competition, you know, like... um, 
rabbi's got talent, and he's going to kind of roll them all out, and they're all going to kind of take the equivalent of the rabbinical HSC, and, and Jesus really wants to win the kind of rabbinical academic decathlon kind of deal. Like, it's not as if Jesus just wants people who know a lot of stuff, who are able to say, yeah, I know exactly where that scripture came from, and I can provide you with the context. Oh, yes, I'm familiar with all of that theology. Jesus is not particularly interested in shaping this group of men to just be people who know a bunch of stuff. Jesus selects and calls these men, teaches and trains them, reminds them of what he has said and what he is doing, because these men are going to become the apostles, the sent ones, the ones that Jesus is going to send when he ascends to the Father to continue his work. Some of you have never been in our physical building, so I'll tell you what is over the door of our building. It's a verse from the end of John where Jesus says these words, as the Father sent me, you can fill it in at home if you like, I am sending you. I am sending you. And we believe that that was not just a message that Jesus gave to his disciples then, but it's a message that continues to resonate for disciples now. That what we are called to as followers of Jesus, as apprentices to Jesus, is ultimately to learn the family business so that we can take it up and continue it. The, the idea of being a disciple is not just to grow in knowledge. It's not just to grow even in particular skills. It's in order to grow so that we can participate in the plans and purposes of God to renew the world in Jesus Christ through the enabling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the end result. That's the end goal. That's the key and primary outcome. It's not enough for us to gather together and learn stuff. We have to gather together in the personal context to experience that relational closeness and support in order that we can take up the challenge of not only remembering what Jesus has said and has done, but also to take up the challenge and invitation to say yes to Jesus. Whether you've only just begun saying yes to Jesus, saying yes, okay, I'll ask some of my questions. Yes, okay, I'll attend a church. Yes, okay, I'll start reading the Bible. Yes, okay, I'll start trying to live my life a particular way. Or whether you've been doing that for decades. That's why Jesus calls us. That's why discipleship is so important. If it weren't for the mission, discipleship would be an added extra. If it weren't for the mission that Jesus was calling us into, it wouldn't really matter if we grew in knowledge and skill and virtue and character and if our choices and priorities stayed the same or not. It wouldn't really matter as much because ultimately if there were no mission, we could just be private about our faith. We could just keep it all quite personal because there wouldn't be any real application in our world. But the reality is that the mission drives discipleship. The mission that Jesus has given to us, that he sends us to participate in, requires us to grow and to grow together. And so we grow in our relationship with God when we spend time with him alone, and we grow when we spend time with just a few, and we grow in the personal context too. In each of these, something slightly different occurs, but in all the contexts, the three that we've started looking at and the two that are to come, All of them are focused on preparing us to step into the family business, to join our Father in what He is doing in the world, to stand alongside of our brother in Christ Jesus and basically do the work that God has given to Him and by extension to us. This is why all of this is so important. We'll talk next week about a little bit more of the how. 
So we're aware that you know, we don't want this to feel like it's overwhelming, that you know, we have to do, do a life group and then have a discipling relationship and spend more time with God and kind of on and on it goes. There's still two more contexts. How am I going to fit it all in? We want to find ways to make this work for us. Not so that we can say, oh, look, we've got all the five contexts going. Not just so that we can say, oh, look, we've got this fantastic life group ministry. But ultimately, we want all of this to happen so that we can say, people here at GBC are being discipled for the mission of God. So that we might see lives changed by Jesus. That's the bottom line. In the personal context, our relationships are built around Jesus, his teaching, his activity, and his mission. The closeness, support, and challenge we experience in these small groups is key to a well-rounded discipleship. Due to the current public health orders, our facilities remain closed to the public. If you'd like to join us for worship this week, you'll have to do so online. Our services this week are at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. And you can join in by logging into gbconline.org.au. Keep an eye on our social media platforms for any changes. Until next time, God bless.